Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Club. This is the place everyday real estate investors gather to share their best stories, biggest insights, and favorite tactics to grow a portfolio of cash-flowing properties in today's market. Here's your host, Gabe Peterson. All right. Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, hopefully this is a Friday for you. We are just getting into the spring season and there are some buds coming out of the window. So I am super excited. And on that note, I'm excited to talk to Jeff Love, who is our guest today. Jeff is a real estate attorney and investor from, and let me get this right, Gibbs, Gidden, Locker, Turner, Senate, and Whitbrot. Um, That is <laughs> quite a mouthful. Uh, Jeff, Thank you for hopping on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. You got it. You got it pretty darn close. And it, it's, you know, hopefully we can add a couple more names in the future just to make it even worse. <laughs> is that is that how uh, legal, you know, law firms always work? Is that once a new partner comes on board, they just start adding the last names to to the name? You think that's bad. Entertainment law firms, they've got nine, ten uh, partners because everybody wants their name on it. We're at the point where we're going to go with Gibbs Giddin because yeah. we just got we've got too many it's too much of a mouthful but there's gotta be some branding down. person on your team that's just like all right guys this is enough we gotta we gotta shorten it up a little bit yep <laughs> right on well yeah thanks for hopping on the show um as i told you before we got on here we like starting with stories we like to hear how people kind of got to where they are so uh, why don't you take us back to the beginning of your story how'd you get into real estate well, if you, if you ask my parents, it was building blocks. It was always building things. Reasonable, always, reasonable. Yep. Legos. I don't know if that was really true, but that's what they tell me now. Um, for me, it was really just in high school. I always liked real estate. Um, we had a bunch of family friends that were developers and, you know, they're all successful and they built things. So to me, it was really just seeing, you know, that tangible, real, you know, real estate, you know, you're, you're, everyone has it, whether it's, you know, you're living in your house, you're in your office, you go to out to dinner, it's real estate. So I actually, you know, after college, I went to law school more to, with the intent to become a real estate developer. Okay. I wanted to learn about contracts. I wanted to see how it worked and thought, you know, hey, I'd be a lawyer for a couple of years and see the legal side of it. And then I'd go off and develop projects and you know, be a principal in, in a real estate company. Um, you know, was it 13, 14 years later? Here I am still on the legal side. Um, it just, I think it fits my personality more. Kind of like to be behind the scenes and I'm not stuck on one project. You know, I've got 10 or 15 different ones at the same time for clients and get to work on deals in Los Angeles, Nevada. You know, I have a deal right now in Tennessee for clients and just helping them across the country and different types of deals too, you know, where they were doing development, whether, you know, it's something in an opportunity zone, it's a short-term rental. So that that's really just appealed to me to help clients at different stages of projects, different size clients. So I've invested kind of on my own as I've you know, got more experience, but the legal side seems to be where it fits me the best. And I just enjoy helping the clients grow their companies. Nice. Yeah. I mean, we always say on the podcast that you stick to your strengths and hire your team around you to uh, to fit in all the spaces that you aren't an expert at. And if you're an expert at law, you know, that's where you go and that's where you stick to your strengths. So love to hear that. Um, it sounds like you are, I mean, you're an active investor. You have that fourplex. You you are out there in the field. At what point did you start um, buying your own properties? 
started about five years ago. Um, and where we started is we're in Southern California, uh, my mm -hmm. wife and I. So it's it's an expensive market. It's not your typical investment where you're really focused on cash flow. Um, you know, we're right by the beach. So our first fourplex was, you know, almost kind of a backwards investment, I'll call, where it's really a long-term hold. You know, it's not about the cash flow. It was really for our kids. And we, you know, the way we established the structure is our kids are right now two, four, and seven. Mm. And together they own 15% of the property. That's a crazy house. <laughs> yeah. Two, so it, it's crazy life, you yeah, know, exactly. added the sports and stuff. But for that particular <laughs> investment, it was really hold for the long term. You know, we'll pull money out, buy another one. And if the idea, you know, in 25, 30 years, we'll have a property to leave to each of the kids. Um, so for that type, and then you know, we're in other passive investments, other markets that we look at more for kind of the cash flow. Yeah. Um, so kind of a mix for both, which I like because it's, you know, the, the old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, it's not all for appreciation. It's not all for cash flow with different markets. So that's kind of been at least, you know, my wife and I, our strategy for our personal real estate investments. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. We're right on. Let's uh, let's shift gears and talk the legal side of real estate. Um, and law, the legal side of real estate to me is always that thing that you know you're you're kind of reticent to put your money into until you really need it, and then you're like so thankful that you spent money on uh, you know on creating that purchase agreement or um, you know your leases, whatever it is that you need to you need to be you know the documents that you need created or worked. It's very important, and so um, the first step in the legal process is always the purchase agreement from the from the real estate perspective, um, and that can come down in a lot of different structures. So let's talk about structuring deals and your clients, how you see them structured, what are the best structures for certain type of deals. Um, just kind of walk me through when it comes to lease options, seller financing, etc. What are the best structures that you've seen used? Right now, you know, it, it just depends on the market and depends on the type of deal. Um, a lot of times we'll get involved even at the LOI stage, you know, if we're oh, talking okay. about if, if it's a you know big purchase or a lease, because by the time you get to the purchase agreement, you know, there could be a material term that wasn't put in there. So, for example, I'll give you in California, a lot of times with leases, we have what's called Prop 13. And it means, you know, our taxes, it doesn't get reassessed. Um, it goes up one or two percent a year Well, other states it's being reassessed every year. So you can imagine, you know, a big warehouse in Los Angeles, you bought in the sixties, you're paying, you know, much, you know, tens of thousands of dollars less in taxes. Mm. And a lot of times in leases, uh, tenants will want what we call prop 13 protection saying, Hey, you sell the building. I want to keep that property tax base. I don't want you to hit me with a $50,000 tax bill. Wait, so pause it real quick. Uh, so in California, if I'm getting this right, when you own a property, it's the property taxes do not go up more than two percent per year. One one That's to two percent. Right. One to two really? percent. It depends on you know the school fees and the city that you're in. But every couple of years, they put it on the ballot to try to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, they tried uh, this last election; it didn't pass. So, like, you buy your home for a million dollars, and twenty years later, it's worth two million. It doesn't get reassessed. It gets reassessed that one to two percent a year. So there's millions of dollars, you know, the, the cities and counties want to get after, but that's, that was passed in the seventies and that proposition says it's based on the purchase price with that incremental increase every year. And so that, so when you sell the property, that's when it's reassessed. 
gets reassessed on a sale or major construction. Interesting. So huh. you can imagine a lot of the deals, you know, tenants want protection, buyers want protection. So it's things like that, that you, we often do want to negotiate early on in like an LOI before you get to a purchase agreement or a lease, because then it's sometimes harder to go back and renegotiate certain terms like that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that's, see, that's a thing that I had no idea about. And if I didn't have a lawyer on my side, I would not, uh, wouldn't even know to put that in the contract. So case in point, but, um, shoot, I was just thinking about something, a question that I had. Oh, clauses that, that you add to a contract. What are some clause, like, you know, everybody has their own purchase agreement that they use when they go out there into the field. Um, most people that I, that I've seen on the commercial side won't use the state version. And so what clauses do you see missing from a lot of people's purchase agreements that you think, um, you know, that would really benefit the the seller or the buyer to, to be added? The biggest one is for a seller is making sure you have a good limitation of liability clause, mm. especially when you get into commercial or, you know, five plus multifamily. Um, you don't want to sell your building and then have the buyer come because you've reached a representation and you lose the entire purchase price. Why why'd I sell the building? So a lot of times we will limit the seller's liability and it ranges based on the deal, but you know, two, three, five percent of the purchase price and that's the cap. So, you know, absent fraud or something really bad, if I just breached a representation and, you know, I didn't know about environmental issues or title something, that's going to be my cap. And that protects me as the seller knowing that, hey, I can sleep because I'm not going to lose the whole value. Um, you know, the flip side for this buyer is, you know, I want to make sure that I've got protection. I'm doing my due diligence, but I want to know what the seller knows. So I'm really going to focus on those representations to see, make sure I know everything they know. And I'm also going to push back on that limitation of liability clause and make sure that if they did breach it, I have some type of recourse against the seller and it's not going to be some shell LLC and the money's all gone that I actually have, you know, some recourse if the purchase agreement and the terms we agreed to turn out not to be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I'm always, uh, I'm always nervous about when signing any purchase agreement um, is those warranties. Uh, I mean, on my side and the seller side, because I mean, I went through a sale recently, literally, I think it was the day or the day before we closed that my facility got completely destroyed, just completely destroyed. Somebody went in there, you know, a, a group of thugs went in there and just stole everything from all the different self-storage facility units. Um, and that canceled the contract, but it was on closing. I think, I think the papers had already been signed. And so it was a big wow. like legal question, but in the end, I just said, you know, it's destroyed. I get it. You can walk away. No harm, no foul. Um, but that's just to say when you don't have certain warranties in there, certain clauses that protect you as a buyer or a seller, um, things could get sticky if you, you know, the, the facility is destroyed or, or, or harmed and, uh, you're still on the hook for, for purchasing it. So um, let's also talk, I want to talk about wholesaling because that's something that a lot of single family people do. And there it's kind of a legal gray zone in my mind. Um, I don't know about specifically California, but in your experience, um, you know, you can wholesale commercial and residential properties. What are the different uh, restrictions? If you know, state by state, um, does wholesaling work across the board every state or are there certain states that it's not considered, um, you know, it's not considered legal. 
it i gave you the lawyer answer unfortunately it depends on the yeah. state because yeah. each state you know we have our own department of real estate and those laws kind of go down sometimes you have county and city laws as well for the most part there's no restriction you know if we're okay. just going to talk about a general sense you know you have a contract with the seller there's nothing that prohibits you from kind of flipping that property i actually have a client that's doing it in the commercial context um they are buying it from kind of the wholesaler in new mexico and there's no issues and when i went through the contract with him you know i just said you know the most important thing is making sure that you know the terms from the actual seller kind of flow down to you that you have enough due diligence time um you know the representations that kind of the wholesaler really is the middleman but everything is you know like i said flows down to you so yeah. we went through that no issues um but it, it fortunately depends because you know i'll give you the kind of the completely off topic but crazy example if you went back to the COVID moratoriums uh, we had in california every county was different state cities were different state was different and you had federal so it was an absolute nightmare to kind of reconcile all of that and that's the same type of thing when you're doing any real estate deal like wholesaling you you know just because the state allows it is there some specific type of local restriction and cities have the ability to do that so it is important you know if that's your business and you're in a certain market you know make sure you know you're actually just doing a you know quick search to make sure that you're not missing some type of restriction that you get you get caught up on yeah yeah that makes sense yeah covid was definitely an interesting time um for everybody when it comes to leasing and evictions and all that stuff so um glad that's over you know we've moved past that a little bit when in uh when you with all your clients that you work with i mean i know you guys work with a ton of them from different different sectors and single family multifamily, commercial development whatever um what are the biggest legal roadblocks that you see people running into it actually follows you know, real well with kind of the lesson you give in the shows is not having your team in place mm. it doesn't matter you know if you're small or big you know i've got you know big clients you know they they think they're big they they don't want to spend you know money on you know insurance or legal fees because they've done it before and they've run into issues I've got, you know, new clients that are trying to, they don't know what they don't know. So, you know, they don't have that good accountant that can help them with their, you know, operating agreement in an LLC. And it's a complex waterfall because it's a syndication and they have investors and they think, you know, their normal accountant that's helping them with their tax return can do it. And they run into issues. Other clients that are doing development, you know, they're not overseeing their contractor enough, you yeah. know, and there's delays because they're just not on top of it. So really i think no matter where you are in you know sophistication size it's having that biggest issue is making sure you kind of know what you don't know and having that team in place whether it's you know taxes and accounting legal insurance you know a broker to help you find deals just you know someone on your team that does underwriting and you're better at property management just having that in place no matter what size you are um it really helps you because then you can focus on on what you're good at which we talked about earlier yep um do, is it still when i first got into real estate the suggestion was that every property should be in its own llc and that's the that's the wisdom that i've been following for my own career um every property i buy i put it in an llc but i've heard that that kind of uh that suggestion has changed over time is that still what you recommend your clients to do to put properties into individual llc's 
um, or is there some other structure that you guys like to use? It depends on the client. You know, I have one, you know, very, very wealthy guy, real estate across the country. And, you know, he was up to 25, 30 LLCs and he just threw up his hands and said, I've had enough. You know, it, it's too, <laughs> it's it's too much to manage. The, exactly. Well, the it's paperwork is just ridiculous. It's, it's a lot of paperwork. You're doing annual reports at different states. You have to kind of qualify those LLCs, different state tax returns. So, you know, he took them all and put them back into one. And said, you know what? I'm comfortable with the risk. I'm, you know, I've got insurance, and that worked for him. Other clients, you know, we do have them in each LLCs. The when I recommend different LLCs or balloon partnerships, it's really for you know two reasons. One, there's a property has specific risk. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got an apartment building, a lot of coming and going. There's potential for you know tenant to have a party, an Amazon delivery to slip and fall, where you've got extra exposure versus like a retail um, strip mall and your tenants indemnifying you for everything mm. or a property is has an environmental concern. You know, it was an old dry cleaners. It's near a gas station. I don't want that property to expose my other assets. So I'm going to keep that separate. And I also keep it separate if, you know, I have investors, you know, that that's like the number one way to keep it separate. If I've got different investors on different deals, I need to keep it separate because, you know, they're, they're different investors. So I look at each one differently because in California for an LLC, you're paying a minimum of $800 in franchise taxes to create that LLC. Yeah. If it's just, you know, two single family rentals and there's not same, it's just, you know, it's just us or the same partners, nothing really, nothing bad that's going to expose me. I might just keep them in the same one and save the money. Yeah. Um, so you, you want to look at it. That was the wisdom, but when you, when you really scale, it just becomes it becomes really hard to manage when you have thirty companies and each one's its its own business with its own tax return potentially its own annual filings keeping the name straight it becomes a lot. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I focus on self storage, mobile home parks, and RVs. Um, and so every one that I buy, I've been putting them into specific LLCs. But it's just you're right; it's becoming a nightmare. And I just I want a better way to do it because the paperwork is just in my mind, not worth it. And I don't see, um, so it sounds like that is the reason that you would do it to, you know, to protect yourself. If one facility had an issue and that would protect the other facilities from, from being exposed to that same thing. Um, is it, does it matter if it's across state lines or should, I, I mean, you mentioned like if you have multiple properties across the United States, different states, can you still put them under one LLC or is it more advised to split it up by state, split it up by um, asset class? And this is assuming that you don't have partners. Let's just say you, it's just you owning properties and um, one person, one entity owning properties. Should you put them all in an LLC by state? Is there another way to group it or what would you suggest? I think either one will work. You know, when it comes across state lines or again, you know, any state, if I'm doing business in that state and I'm a California LLC, I need to register to do business there. Mm. And it's a great area because, you know, a lot of times, depending on the investment, are you really doing business? But, you know, the safe answer is yes. You know, I'm a landlord. I'm renting out this building. So if I'm going to have to qualify to do business there anyway, then I might just create, you know, a Washington LLC and a California one. Or I might group it by asset classes, like you said, you know. Certainly don't think you need to go down to one, but instead of having, you know, 10 LLCs, maybe you've got three, maybe you've got four and it helps manage that still segregating. It makes it easier for me. You know, 
I've got self-storage LLC. Well, obviously I know what's going on that one versus my short-term rentals. Um, and that kind of helps mitigate the risk. And it's always a you know fine line between the asset protection your entity gives you versus insurance. Because mm. I could have really I could have good insurance, I could have an umbrella policy, and you know, there's very, very little risk that it's gonna be beyond those limits. But you never know. And a lot of insurance policy, there's exclusions, you know, you may not know of. COVID showed that with restaurants, you know, there were tons of exclusions and a lot of people got really burned because they thought they were insured and they weren't. Mm. That's why the benefit, you know, the common kind of knowledge or advice is, you know, have the insurance and, you know, an entity where it limits your liability. So they have to not only exceed that insurance, but then my only exposure is what that particular LLC owns, which was, you know, one property or two properties. I'm not exposing my entire portfolio just what yep. that particular LLC owns. Yep, that makes sense. And um, if you're talking about personal liability, do you generally suggest people put all of, say you have each property in an LLC, do you suggest they put them into a trust or into a, an umbrella LLC or anything like that? Usually, you, a lot of times, it's a good question because a lot of people get confused with what a trust does. And your typical you know, family trust doesn't give you any liability protection. Oh, okay. it, it's an estate planning tool where, so I don't have to go to probate right, and spend the sense. money with that. It's going to go directly, you know, to my, to my children, you know, cause they're the beneficiaries of that trust. And it's a great tool for that, but it's often misconstrued that it protects the assets and it doesn't. So the, the real liability protection tools is, you know, you have a limited partnership, you have an LLC and, and then to get through that, the only assets that are at risk are what it owns to get, you know, personal exposure. They'd have to what's called piercing the corporate veil, kind of a funny legal saying. And that means they can go through the entity. Basically the entity doesn't exist. And that can only happen if you're commingling bank accounts. Um, you're not treating it like a separate entity, which is another important thing. Cause a lot of times I'll see clients, um, they'll create an LLC for their property and they start running all these personal expenses through it. And that's fine, you know, if they're legitimate, they're related to the company. But if you're just cr- treating it like another bank account, you've just destroyed the whole purpose of the LLC because a plaintiff's going to come, they're going to, you know, if they were going to sue, that LLC is going to be pierced and you're going to be personally exposed. Interesting. Okay. That's something I didn't know. And it's a good nugget to take. Um, so if you do, as the owner, you own these LLCs, there are profits that are being made. Um, so how do you suggest? the owner take money from from a bank account from the profits that have been generated by that uh, that property owner distributions or mm-hmm. or what other way you just don't want to use like your debit card to purchase something from the the um the bank account directly you want to transfer the funds to your personal account and then use those funds is that right if that's yeah if you were going to use it for a personal expense you know like dinners you know you can expo- expense some of them but if if i'm you know if I'm going to Bora Bora on a personal trip, nothing related to my entity, I don't want to use the same bank account for my LLC or use my credit card for my LLC because that's a personal expense. Mm. If I need the cash for that, I'm just going to make a distribution to myself from my LLC and as a personal expense. So it's really, you treat it like a separate business that it is. You can expense, you know, if if you have a, a work truck and you're using it for your business, you have dinners from you know your marketing brokers. Those are all fine, but you really want to draw the line when it's a really personal expense, yep. um, just like any business, and keep that separate. Because yep. if 
if it's treated as one in the same, that's really when you run into issues and you can risk having a plaintiff kind of pierce that veil as we talked about. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Right on, man. Well, hey, I uh, took a peek at the clock. It looks like we are rounded it down. Before we move on, though, I want to ask about your your personal uh, investing and what the the horizon looks like for you. What's your guys' next steps? Our goal in, you know, is really to buy a property every five years, you okay. know, outright, not to invest in passive, you know, so that way, you know, when we retire, it's kind of my, you know, another form of retirement savings, you know, when, when I'm ready for that age. I love to have six, seven properties that we're getting the cash flow from. We've to date, we've really focused on two to four unit multifamily because you know, everyone's been a renter. We, we we know it. We know the area that we're in. We we were renters. We know what it rents for. We can, you know, manage it ourselves. We can find tenants. So it's really been easy. I, I loved that kind of 30 year fixed mortgage. You get it, you forget it. And then over time I can pull money out of it. So that's been our goal. And then in addition, investing in, you know, passive investment syndications to get exposure to different geographic locations, different asset classes. Um, so hopefully, you know, down the road, we've got a nice diversified real estate portfolio. Perfect. I love it. All right. It's time to move to the quick question round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. It starts with books or any form of education. Give me two recommendations, one for general life wisdom, one for real estate. General wisdom, uh, how to win friends and influence people is an old book. You probably heard it before, but it's worth saying again. I think it's my favorite book with it's real estate and not real estate, really, because it's dealing with how to deal with people mm. and that's life. And that's real estate, real estate. You're dealing with tenants, you're dealing with brokers, you're dealing with sellers, how to negotiate, how to deal with them. Best, probably best book you can read. Yeah. Um, not not a non-real estate i'll just throw it out there because it helps me every single day and it's really old school it's not tech is i kind of write down my tasks okay you know, from a legal perspective i put it on a notepad i've got 10 things to do today because the phone rings i've got emails if i don't do it i'm never going to get it done and it might be silly it might be old putting it down there one crossing it off makes me feel good you know like i've got through certain <laughs> things hit a dopamine right there it is, you know, I've got already this morning, I've got through a couple things and it, it it's good. I'm getting through the list and I know what I have to do. And that makes me get through the day. So if you ever, you know, if you're one of those people that are not getting things done or kind of losing track of time, try, try just making an old school list. Yep, Can't recommend yep. it enough. I love that. Uh, and yeah, How to Win's Friends, Influence People. That's one of my favorite books too. Um, I never liked the title, but man, the content in that book is so good. It's just just how to be a good person really is the content, but it's, uh, it does it in a way that really makes sense and is actionable. So good, good recommendations. Um, I'm going to move us on to the next question and this is for your younger self. So let's go back to the Jeff who was just getting out of law school, go to him, look him in the eye, give him one piece of advice moving forward. Uh, well, that's a good one is you can't be afraid to take the first step. I think mm -hmm. if, if I would have loved to start investing even earlier, um, you know, it's still, it's still nerve wracking. And, and, and it's really across the board. Like my, my take 20 seconds, my father-in-law, he could have bought these buildings for his business, you know, decades ago for, you know, 50, $60,000 in LA. Now they're worth 10, 15 million, but he's always scared because that was a lot of money at the time. But yeah. now look at it today. Yeah. What are housing prices going to be for our kids? So, you know, I wish I had had that kind of mantra, you know, the first one's always going to be the hardest, the most scariest. You got to do it. And if I had known that earlier on, I would have been, you know, 10 years further in my investing journey. 
All right. Whoever is keeping track, I've said this on every episode, pretty much everybody that comes on says they wish they got started earlier. So add another jot down there for somebody who said they wish they got started earlier. And if you are listening to this podcast and you're thinking about getting started, this is the message. Go out there, get started, just get a deal done. It's the first one that's always the hardest and then it gets a lot easier. So that's the message for the day. And that moves us to the next question. And this is about the US. It's a big place, a lot of opportunity out there. Give me the metro, the, the city that you are most excited about investing in today. I think it's still Southern California, LA, specifically kind of Redondo Beach, the beach cities where I am. It's because it's my backyard. You can't yeah. overstate that enough. Knowing we're a lot of people, you know, we're investing in different states we've never been. Which is good if you know you have the time and knowledge about it, but you really need to know where you're investing yeah, and where sure. you live, especially like I said, if it's multifamily and you've been a renter, you know the area, yeah, you know, that gives you one leg up because you understand what you're doing, you understand the market. Yep. Um, side note there, what do you think about the California markets? Do you think that there there's gonna be a crash there? Do you think, you know, I've heard so much about commercial, um, especially down downtown San Francisco just being vacant and you know, things are going to go under, but um, what do you think about house prices? Do you think they're going to be stable, increase, decrease? What's your what's your crystal ball say? They're still stable. There's just still such a lack of lack of inventory because mm-hmm. in California we have such a increase in prices, and to sell, you know, you've got a big hit with capital gains, um, and interest rates now are higher, so people are not selling, and if you're not selling, the inventory is is lower, so the houses is is really going to stay the same. Or go up, you know. I, I think that's where that's going. It's a different story with commercial. Like you said, office. LA is the same, where you've got high vacancy rates and people not really wanting to go back into office space. You know that they, they are trading at much lower numbers and people are taking losses. Yeah. So it's really it depends on the asset class that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I actually just read an article um, yesterday. It was this. Uh, I can't remember which. It was one of those big um, big firms out there that owns office, and they just sold. Two towers in, I think it was San Jose or something like that, um, for a loss, which is, you know, they bought it in 2014 and they're selling it at a loss now, which blows my mind because, you know, 2014 to now, that's a huge upswing. Should have been a huge upswing, but now I guess not. So crazy, crazy times. Um, But that moves us to the next question. And this is about finding deals. Every, uh, Every real estate transaction starts with finding that deal in the first place. So what's your favorite way to find good deals? I think my network, you know, whether it's brokers, accountants, everyone knows someone. And, you know, a lot of times when it comes to market, it's you've got competition, the price movie there, finding, you know, especially if you're looking for off market deals, deals that are coming, just getting feelers out there and pe- letting people know that you're you're looking. Um, that's when you really can find that kind of great deal. Yep. Relationships, relationships, relationships. That's what real estate is about. Um, next question is about relationships, but it's about mentors. Uh, none of us are islands. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. So who is one mentor who has contributed significantly to your career today? I think it's one of the, the, the partners when we were struggling to say the law firm, the, the third one, Loker, Bill Loker, he, he's always been a mentor. He's a real estate investor as well. And, you know, he was the one that kind of gave me the idea of giving an interest to your children, you know, let mm-hmm. them learn about real estate, kind of get that out of your state and just how to deal with people, deal with clients, deal with investors. Um, I've just, I've learned a great deal from him um, and always appreciated his advice. Right on. I love it. 
All right. This next one, second to last question is about your strengths. Uh, we are all gifted with strengths that we uniquely provide this world. So what is your Superman strength? That's a really good one. Um, you know, I think it goes back to, I hate to repeat things, but kind of knowing what I don't know, I, I, I'm the one where I'm trying to build a shed in the backyard and I'll give up my hands and I'll say, you know what, I got to call a handyman because <laughs> I can't do it. I'm going to end up breaking something. So it has not always been like that. I used to just, I'm going to do it myself. You know, I'm not going to pay for someone, you know, my job, I get it all done and not utilize other attorneys to help. But as I've got more experience, it's, you know, life is short, kind of focus on what you're good at. And although it may not be kind of a strength in this in typical sense, it's the strength is knowing what I don't know. Yeah. And that that's actually a hard one to to realize and to let go of. But boy, does it help when you're able to just delegate things and focus on, you know, this, the, the contracts, things that you are good at. Yep. I'm going to call that strength wisdom because uh, that is one of the most important strengths to have. Uh, That leads us to the final question. This one is for the listeners. I'm sure people want to reach out, get in contact with you. What is the best way for them to do that? Email is probably the most responsive or, you know, check out our website. My email is jlove at gibbsgiddon.com. Cool. jlove at gibbsgiddon.com. I will put that link in the show notes. So if y'all want to reach out to Jeff, just go ahead and click the more in the description. It'll pull down the full description and in there you can find Jeff's uh, email. All right, man, that wraps it up. Thank you very much for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. For everybody who's here with us today, thank you guys for showing up. You are the reason we do this. So if you guys have any questions whatsoever, reach out to me, Gabe at the real estate investing club.com. And if you guys want to support the show, all we ask is you give us a like, subscribe, share, all that jazz. Other than that, I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic week. Enjoy the spring. It's coming up on us. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right. Before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make. If you're interested in becoming a passive investor in one of my deals, my own company, Kaizen Properties, is looking for capital partners for our upcoming projects. We invest in what are known as recession-resistant assets, mainly self-storage facilities, mobile home and RV parks, and industrial properties. If you're interested in investing and would like to learn a little bit more about my company, our investing criteria, and some of the previous projects we've done, go to the Real Estate Investing Club podcast at therealestateinvestingclub.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Click on the Invest With Us button. That'll pop up the investor form, fill that out, and we will reach back out to you as soon as we can. Or if you prefer a little bit more of a personal touch, you can reach out to me at gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. So really, that is it. Again, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys during this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.